Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 16 as we're going through the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 21. And we're smack dab in the middle of Armageddon. This is it. This is what it is. It's not Bruce Willis's movie of trying to stop an asteroid from hitting planet Earth called Armageddon. This is actually what it is. And you'll see that today. I don't have time to go flush everything out about it because we'll run out of time. But other parts of the Bible, other scriptures refer to all that goes on there. There's actually eight stages, eight phases of the campaign of Armageddon. And uh, we're not going to be able to do that because I would have to pull in all kinds of mosaics from other passages. And it would just take too long. But since we're in the book of Revelation, I just want to stay with what the book of Revelation is doing. And we'll look at phase one and phase eight of the campaign of Armageddon. The title of today's message is, The Good Begins When the Bad Ends. And that's a principle, if you pan back from the prophecy that you're seeing, if you pan back and you watch what God is doing, He is ending the bad so that the good can begin. The good in reference is the kingdom of Christ that He's going to establish on earth for a thousand years, return earth to its Edenic conditions, and that's the good. That's what the whole Old Testament and and New Testament has been focusing on is the coming kingdom, the future coming kingdom. That's the good. But in order for that good to come, the bad has to end. Evil, wickedness, evil people have to be vanquished. Satan has to be bound for a thousand years during that reign of Christ. And the demons have to be bound. So God is dealing with it and showing you and I, this is how you deal with the bad in your life. See, most people think that prophecy or the, like the book of Revelation or Daniel doesn't have a lot of application. I think they're just simply lazy. It has plenty of application because if you look at what God's doing, what he's trying to show you and I is how to deal with things in our own life. So the principle, the good can begin only if the bad ends, apply that now to yourself. Think about this in your own life. There's a good part of this. And you understand this. To get to the next level, to get to tomorrow, to get to the next step, something has to end. That's a principle we all live with. Something must be left behind. We must move on in life. And there's a good aspect of that. Our childhood must give way to our teenage years. Our teenage years must give way to adulthood. And we consider that a good step forward, right? Our prom days must give way to marriage. Our first job must give way to our careers. Our businesses, our old product lines, must give way to new product lines, must give way to innovations and new things that the customer wants. See, those are good things, and people can deal with that, especially even in our health. Think about how medicine has changed. New medicine helps us in different ways. Remember, in the ancient days, well, it wasn't too ancient, when they did bloodletting, Couldn't you imagine if you went to a doctor and they would just drain you of blood? That's how they dealt with people. For centuries they dealt with people until we finally found out, well, that's not a good idea. That's not blood to let anybody. But that's given way to good things. Think about this. The horse and buggy days has given way to the cars. 
The guys who manufactured the horse and buggies had to come to the reality that we're in an industry that's dying and we need to move on. And maybe that was hard for them to move on from making wagons and stagecoaches, but eventually they saw the handwriting on the wall. The car was taking over. I was reading a business book this week that talked about why do businesses fail? And they, they studied them for six years, major businesses, and looked at what happened. And they, what they, we finally found out was this, that the CEO or the people who were running the company wouldn't get into reality. They stayed in this, this fantasy world, acting like a, as if nothing had changed, nothing was going on, and they simply stayed stuck. And we're talking about highly intelligent CEOs, high IQs, but a failure to grasp the reality of what was happening in the environment that were, they were in. Whether a product line was dying or something that they were selling was dying, they wouldn't grasp the reality of it. They wanted just to simply go as if nothing was happening and ignore reality. And it found out that every CEO that ignored reality ended up killing the company. They just simply wouldn't embrace reality. Because why? What they found in this business book is that these CEOs didn't want something to end. They had a hobby horse at the company. They liked what the company did for them or whatever, and they simply didn't want to let it go. And they ended up killing the company. Interesting book. But you can see this even in our own lives. There's a bad side of not letting things go. We embrace those good things of going from the prom to marriage. We embrace that. But there's a bad side to all of us that we don't want to let go. We don't want to let go of that relationship that we know is unhealthy. We have a friendship or maybe we're single and we're dating somebody. And we know intuitively there's something wrong with that person. I need to get them out of my life. Sometimes that's hard to do. People don't want to do that. You know that person's unhealthy. You know that person's un very toxic. Not helping your character out. Not helping your walk with the Lord. Why are you not letting them go? That becomes harder. Or how about an unhealthy habit that we have? Some habit that's destroying our health. We know it's wrong for us, but yeah, we keep doing it. We keep allowing to live unhealthy lives, and yet we just, we know it's hurting us. Or that addictive behavior that's hurting us. Whatever that addictive behavior is. It could be drugs, pornography. It could be anything. Eating. That addictive behavior is keeping us from getting to the good. It's keeping us stuck or being materialistic. A lot of Christians are succumbed to the materialism that America offers. The lifestyle that America offers. It does offer a lot. Like we talked about with Steve Kern when he comes here and talks, we talk all the time about this. He prays for us that we don't get into the temptation of materialism because that, that, that will drain you. That will keep you stuck. You will spend all your time and energy keeping up with the Joneses, having a better this, having a better that, starting to hoard materialism. It's okay to have nice things, but where does it end? In America, it's constantly consumerism. It's an issue that most Christians in the third world don't understand, perhaps. 
They don't get that because so much things, so many things are available to us. Or how about that job that you have and it's a dead end? You know it needs to end, but you won't pull the trigger. For some reason, you won't pull the trigger. You know this is going nowhere. Or how about this job that keeps taking you away from your family? You're constantly on the road traveling. You're constantly away. Your family, in fact, doesn't hardly know you because you're gone so much. But yet you're doing it so they can have money. But at the end, they need a dad. They need a mom more than they need the money. But you won't let it go. Why? See, those things that we resist of ending get us stuck in life. We get stuck spiritually. And I can tell you this. When you get stuck spiritually, you don't stay at one point. You actually regress. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, i got to teach you the ABCs and the one, two, threes all over again. Because in the spiritual world, if you get stuck and you stop growing, you actually start regressing backwards. You'll start forgetting things. So this is why it's extremely important why God says, in the bad, so you can have the good. And the good that we're talking about personally is the abundant life. The abundant life that Christ promised each and one, every one of us that we can have it right now is being missed by a whole host of Christians because they are stuck. They won't end something. They won't end a bad relationship. They won't end an unhealthy habit. They just won't do it. And so we drag our feet. And if we drag our feet, we will not mature. And hey, hey I get it. It's painful to let things go. It's hard. We have nostalgia wrapped around it. We have the loss. We don't want to lose something. I get it. Believe it or not, death or losing something is the hardest things people deal with. And they typically don't deal with it very well. They get stuck in anger. They get stuck in depression. They get stuck in all kinds of things that prevents them from grieving properly. And they just simply don't want to grieve because they don't want to feel the pain of grief. That's why people don't let things go. But here's the deal. God says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Just to exist? To stay stuck? No. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, notice the word, should walk in them. Now here's what God has planned for your life. He has a whole host of things he wants you to do. A whole host of things he wants you to accomplish. And he has given you the gifts and abilities to match the plan for you. It's all prepared for you. But it, your, it's your and I responsibility if we're going to do it. And what happens is people get stuck. They won't let things go. And before you know it, that plan that God has for their life and what he wants them to accomplish, if you want to call it their mission in life, is not able to be obtained. And they simply stay where they're at. We can't be that kind of Christian. That when we get before Christ and we stand before him and he says, I had so much planned for you, but yet you would not let this thing go. Why? We're going to have that conversation if that's us. We're going to have that, that discussion with the Lord. of saying, And he's going to show you and I, this is what I planned for you, but what, you didn't do it. 
Now, if you're doing it, great. If you're letting things go, great. But this is one of the hardest things for believers to do is to let what needs to be let go, go. What you're going to do as you read through this, and we study the book of Revelation, and then especially the campaign of Armageddon, watch how God doesn't sit back and wait around, but takes the initiative and deals with it in a decidedly... uh, uh, 100% manner, it's over. When he is done, he is done. It is finished. And look how he does this, and then we'll apply it at the end a little bit more, okay? The setting, as you know, is Campaign of Armageddon. If you have your bulletin insert with you, I want you to use this kind of as a reference, and it'll show you we're in the second half of the Great Tribulation. We're in the seven bowl judgments. We dealt with the first bowls last week, one, two, three, and four, and five, and now we're dealing with the sixth and the seventh bowl judgments, which are going to usher in the return of the Messiah to planet Earth once again. So we've studied the first five. Now we're on to six. The Euphrates River dries up. And so that, just keep that out, and that'll show you just a timeline of where we're at and what we're dealing with. So that being the case, we're going to start with the sixth bowl judgment. And so follow with me in verse 12. And we'll go from there, okay? It says this in verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl. And again, the bowls obviously are being poured out on planet Earth, the judgments of God. And let me show you another reference. As you can see, there are 21 judgments that happen in the book of Revelation with the tribulation, the sealed trumpets, and then the seven vials. Each one leads into the next one, and they progressively get worse, more cataclysmic, more global. So everything that's happening here is global and setting up that final battle with Jesus, uh, with the Antichrist. Return back to the text. And it says, poured out on his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. So we're talking literally about the great river Euphrates, and you can see in yellow the river Euphrates starts all the way up in Turkey, goes through Syria, goes through Iraq, meets with the Tigris, and then empties out into um, Persian Gulf. This is, when I referenced earlier, the Strait of Hormuz, this is where that's at. Where Iran, you can see where Iran would block that from the oil coming from like Kuwait or whatnot. But anyway, that's where the great Euphrates River is. And you can see this on a satellite map, and you can see the outline as it goes down. It's very prominent and tons of water. This is why the Fertile Crescent with the Tigris and Euphrates was so fertile because of the water that came from that area and emptied into, um, we call it Persian Gulf. Anyway, one of the things we have to understand about the river Euphrates is it creates a barrier. And if you look at right here, it's Baghdad. About 60 miles south of Baghdad is where Babylon was. And what happens is, and we've studied this before, the Antichrist eventually moves his headquarters to rebuild Babylon right on the side of the Euphrates. Now, here's the deal. I don't know all that goes on, but obviously there's cataclysmic judgments that's happened all through the tribulation, and it has affected our conventional warfare, apparently. You'll see references like in the Gog of Magog War and things of that nature that happened even prior to the tribulation, that they're using old weapons of warfare, not the conventional ones, but old weapons of warfare. 
And if you think through the tribulation with me and all the judgments, I mean, to the fact that the seas have been hit cataclysmically. There's blood in all the water. Great hail and large hailstones has hit the planet Earth, pummeled it. One major meteorite has hit planet Earth. We don't know if it knocks us off our orbit, but somehow our orbit or our relation to the sun has changed where it intensifies. There's a blackout. There's all kinds of cataclysmic events that would probably, this is speculation, knock out a lot of conventional warfare. For instance, I mean, there's two world wars prior to the campaign of Armageddon. It's possible EMPs could have went off. It's possible that radar or anything like that doesn't work. So flying aircraft like a helicopter or a jet may not be possible. Shooting missiles wouldn't be possible if we don't have satellites that direct them to hit what they need to hit. Hence, it's possible that the Antichrist armies goes back to more of ancient types of warfare. Because there's an illusion here. Because if you had planes and aircrafts, why would the great Euphrates River be a barrier to your army? But it is. And so God allows the Euphrates River to dry up and allow Antichrist to move his army across that barrier to attack Israel. So right now, an Antichrist has turned on Israel at this point in time in biblical history. And so... You would need the Euphrates River if you're on foot, if you're on horses, and things of that nature. It's very possible that could be. And again, we don't know all the details because it doesn't say, but it seems to imply they're on foot. Therefore, this makes the way for the Antichrist and his army to come in and attack Israel. Let's go back to the text. And why is it dry up? So that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, I want to unpack that just a little bit. There's a misnomer, and you'll hear some guys who seem to be sloppy with understanding prophecy. And we want to be as precise as we need to be. And you'll hear a lot of times people conjecture, well, these kings of the East must be people like China and India and Japan and Korea and things of that nature. That is not what the Scripture is referring to. That's a misnomer. When you hear someone say that, they're not being precise with biblical scriptures, and they're not being consistent in hermeneutics. The term kings of the east only refers to the Mesopotamian area. It does not refer past that. Typically, the barrier the Bible refers to is the Euphrates. It doesn't want to go past that. So the kings of the east is a direct reference to Iraq, where the Antichrist will be in that Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent area that extends up into Syria and even into Turkey. That's the area from the kings of the east. A passage that you're familiar with, but a lot of people don't connect it with this, is a passage that comes from the nativity of the Messiah when he was born. And uh, you can see this in Matthew 2.1. Let me read it to you. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men, remember those guys? The wise men? The Magoi? From the east came to Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people don't think about this in terms of prophecy, but the reference to the east is referring to the Magi. We know where the Magi are from. They're from Babylon. That's who came and visited Jesus when he was born. 
Hence, to be consistent with Scripture, anytime you see a reference to the east, it only refers to the Mesopotamian area. So when guys, and they get real sloppy in prophecy, they start saying, well, China could mount a 200, man ar- 200 million man army. I'm like, what are you talking about? So what they're doing, they're marrying Revelation 9 to this passage, and the Revelation 9 passage is referring to 200 million demonic army, not a Chinese army. And that's been real sloppy in prophecy, and I want to make sure we're understanding that because a lot of people say, well, only China can mount a 200 million man army, and they would go into the Middle East looking for women because there's, there's no women in China. They all kill the women and only have boys. And, and it's just like, no, that's, that's a misnomer. That's not accurate. It's not referring to China. It's not referring, referring to India. It's referring to Babylon and the Mesopotamian area. I know it seems like a lot, but anyway... I need to parse that out. Let's go back to verse 13 and continue. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So now you're seeing the satanic trinity who is now issuing a summons to the kings of the world to come against Israel, come against the Jews. And notice that they're sending out three demonic frog-like demons in order to do this. And a lot of people say that's just weird. Well, sometimes in the book of Revelation, you get to see what demons look like. And a lot of times, it's not a pretty picture. These are fallen angels, but they have characteristics of animals a lot of times. You'll see that in Revelation 9. But in this sense, these particular demons that come from the satanic trinity are sent out to deceive the kings to come to battle in Armageddon against the Jews. Now, what is their reference to this idea of frogs? Is there anything to deal with the symbolism here of what they look like? Remember, how do frogs catch their prey? With their tongues. Did you see that? Frogs also occupy two worlds. They're amphibian. They occupy the water world and the land. It is showing you something. That these demonic creatures, these demons, are going to summons the people through their tongue, lying. Accompanying with them will be signs and wonders with them. The miraculous. And demons, Satan, occupy both worlds. They occupy the spiritual realm and they also occupy the physical realm. They can manifest themselves physically. Now, here's the deal. A lot of people believe, you know, that they have seen ghosts. They have not seen ghosts. You've seen demons impersonating dead loved ones. They're called familiar spirits. Demons can go back and forth, and even angels can go back and forth from our realm to their realm. The spiritual realm is right here. You just can't see it. And so they occupy both worlds. And so what God is trying to show us or warn anybody about demons is they can manifest physically and show themselves and do amazing things. And they will towards these kings to summon them to the battle of Armageddon. Now, what do you mean by these kings? Well, again, I don't want to rehash everything, but Antichrist is at the top of the food chain at this point in time. And under him are seven kings that co-rule with him as vice-regents over the entire planet. 
the Antichrist has taken three kings out, and now there's seven kings, and with his leadership are ruling the entire planet Earth. Well, to convince these kings to come help him destroy the Jews, the summons has went out, and that summons is accompanied by supernatural events that these frog demons will be able to do to these kings to convince them to attack Israel. Now, I know what you're probably saying. Why? Don't they, are, are they, are, aren't they already on the side of the Antichrist? Aren't they already as evil as they can get? Yes, but they're afraid. And do you know what they're afraid of? There has been three angels prior to this that have been circling the globe, given a universal call to humanity about three things, three angels with three messages from God. That's why there's three frog demons to counteract their message. And they have been scaring people with their message. What is their message? The first message is the eternal gospel that the one angel is telling humanity, give glory to God for the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth. That's the first message. It's a warning that if you don't worship him, you're going to be judged. Second message is that Babylon is going to be destroyed. That's the headquarters for the Antichrist. The great city is fallen. And third, if anyone worships the beast or his image, the wrath of God is coming to you and your destiny will be the lake of fire. This, these three messages from these angels have backed off these unregenerate kings. They're scared. So they're backing off. So they have to be kind of coaxed into this with a counterfeit miraculous signs and wonder from these demonic frogs, demons, in order to attack Israel. Because God has pretty, pretty much put it out there. You do this, I'm coming after you personally. So that's why they have to have this coaxing by these demonics. And they're going to coax it with their frog tongues, their lying tongues. Okay? And, and they'll do it through the supernatural deception of that. So verse 14 says this, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now, we don't know all the ramifications of what they say. So we do this through deduction of possibly what could be their message. It's possible the message is something like this. If you don't come, you're going to be destroyed. We're going to clump up together, or we're going to put our forces together so we can fight this evil being that seeks to destroy us. Now, they're going to call God evil. You're right. They don't see God as good. They see him as evil. They see Jesus as evil. I know that's hard for you to grasp, but from the other side, God is the enemy. Jesus is the enemy. We are the enemies, right? So you have to see it from the demonic's perspective. And what they would tell these people, and again, it could be a flat-out lie of saying, the God of heaven is the evil one. Satan is the good guy. We've got to fight him, otherwise he's going to destroy us. And we've got to clump all together, and we're going to fight and resist him, and we're going to win. Perhaps they'll say, look what the Antichrist did to the two witnesses. No one could deal with them, but he dealt with them decisively and killed them. And we're going to do the same thing again and prevent the coming of Jesus and prevent the God of heaven from having control over this planet. Are you with me? See, that's, that's 
perhaps what they might be saying. It could be flat out just like that. Or it could be with a deception that, and I know this sounds weird, but it plays right into things that you're seeing today. This whole thing could be sold to humanity as alien invasion. I know that sounds crazy, but I want you to think about this from one sense. It could be flat out, we're going to oppose the God of heaven, or it could be, look, guys, we're facing alien invasion. You've been seeing three aliens fly around in their saucer telling us to watch out. I mean, imagine from a, a, a pagan understanding of things, supernatural things happening. If you're not going to attribute that to God as supernatural power, what then would a pagan, a raw unbeliever out there in, in the middle of Bakersfield think when they see creatures flying? You would have to conclude, well, these are space aliens. I know that sounds crazy, but think from what they think, or that creatures could morph and change. They've all seen sci-fi movies. They know that. And so they wouldn't attribute supernatural power. They would attribute to highly advanced technology. Perhaps, and then they give us speculation, because we don't know what actually happens, what's said. It's possible that the message is, look, we're facing alien invasion. And they're going to come and invade from the sky. We've already seen signs of them. We've got it prepared for this alien invasion to counteract this. And the only guy that, that is hopeful in defeating aliens is the Antichrist. Because you remember those two aliens that were in Jerusalem? They had morphed to look like humans, but they really weren't humans because we couldn't kill them. Remember that? I guarantee they'll probably say the two witnesses were aliens that morphed. Guaranteed. And then that, that remember, remember they'll say the flying saucer beamed them up? Remember we saw them rise on YouTube? They rise, rose right in front of us. They're not going to ascribe resurrection to that. They're going to ascribe they got beamed up. The aliens have advanced technology that keeps people uh, alive, and they know how to deal with things. They've advanced so far. Where am I getting that information? The New Age. The New Age is already saying this. I'm not making this up. This is what they're saying already in the New Age circles. That we're getting ready to be invaded by aliens. And we're going to have to clump up and come as one humanity to fight the aliens. And that these aliens are going to destroy us. But yet, here's the interesting thing in the New Age. They're claiming that these avatars, these highly advanced beings, have come to help them. And that these avatars only want our best... And the message is, the problem is you got to get rid of Christianity and Judaism, and we got to come together under the banner of one religion because these new avatars are going to help us fight the aliens. Guess who these new avatars that they're talking to are? Demons. These new advanced creatures that have advanced to the new level are nothing but aliens. When you look in New Age circles and you couple that with UFO circles, I know it sounds crazy. They are. Area 51 types, metal, metal hats, you know, the tinfoil hat brigades and stuff that look at Area 51. The message of the New Age and UFO phenomenon is actually identical to what? The occult. It's identical. New Age, UFO, and the occult have the same message. How come every alien that abducts somebody 
always has an anti-Christian message. Every one of the abductions. They're not really being abducted into a flying saucer. You understand what's happening is they're having an encounter with a demon. That's what's happening. And guess what? Every alien induction, abduction deals with what? Some type of sexual problem. The aliens are doing exper- experiments on the sexual reproduction of humans. Every time. Every time. Why? For some reason, the demonic world is fascinated with our ability to reproduce ourselves because they can't. It's a power they were not given by God. And Satan has been destined to thwart that as much as he can. So that's why you see in the area of sexual immorality a major problem, especially in the demonic realm. Hence, every time these people have these stories of alien abduction, they're abducted sexually. Sexually, every time. And so when you marry those those messages together, aha, it's coming from the same source. So the idea that they could explain all this away by alien technology, we're being invaded by aliens and we have to stop, could be a viable thing that these demons are saying, that they're avatars and they're here to help humanity fight the evil aliens from planet Kolob or whatever, or planet Vulcan. It could be. Again, it's all speculation. Or it could be just flat out, we're going to fight Jesus and we're going to fight the God of heaven. Could be that. I don't know. But it's worth thinking about because here's the deal. Why is it relevant? Because the trends are starting right now. I see it in movies. I see it in the messages of the movies. I see it in the occult. And I see it in the new age. What's happening now is the whore of Babylon that's forming encompasses the new age practices of tolerance. Every message I hear I've heard from the New Age, and it's here, this global religion. It's there. Even the Pope mentions things like this. Do you know that the Vatican has representation for this? They're preparing for this? Why? Do you know that the UN has appointed representatives to the alien? Did you know that? They do. I'm not joking. Why would the UN have a representative for aliens? Why would the Vatican be so interested, with especially their telescopes, in finding alien life? Because they say it's out there. Why would they do that? You and I know there's only two creatures that God created. Well, as far as saint beings, humans and angels. A third of them fell, and then there's humanity. Huh. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. It could play, that, play itself into that. Nonetheless, the real intent, and this is what you must understand, this is what's real. Whatever is said to coax people to come get the Jews, because this is what they're probably going to say. Whether they say it's the God of heaven or Jesus or aliens, they're going to put the Jews in that camp. And they're going to say, look, the Jews are part of that camp with that evil being, and so we must eliminate them completely. So the real intent, you must understand, is the annihilation of every Jew on the planet by Satan. And that's why this call to Armageddon is happening. It's to eliminate the Jews. Why? Oh, goes back to Genesis. God made a promise to Abraham the father of the Jews. 
father of faith. But biologically, the Jews are traced back to Abraham, and he made promises to Abraham that would come to fruition through his lineage, reaffirmed it with Isaac and Jacob, and continued on with the 12 tribes. God has made promise to Israel that he must keep, and he will keep. He's a promise-making God, and he is faithful, and he doesn't change. And he has promises made to them that will come to fruition in the kingdom age. Second, the second coming of Messiah is predicated on the Jews. Predicated on what? Predicated on the Jewish acceptance of the Messiah. You shall not see me again until you learn to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the Jews will learn in the tribulation. Satan knows this. He knows his Bible better than most of the Reformed Calvinistic pastors out there who say that the church has replaced Israel. It's a joke. They're playing right into the hands of Satan. Satan knows in order to stop God from fulfilling his promises to Israel and in order to stop the second coming of the Messiah, which means his destruction and his limitation for a thousand years being bound in hell, he must prevent this by killing every Jew on the planet. Hence, the Bible is telling you and I the source of anti-Semitism any part of this world, even now today, is sourced in Satan. It doesn't make sense. Why would the Europeans be anti-Semitic? Obviously, the Muslims are there. and so. But why does everybody always turn on the Jews, blame the Jews? Why? Because there's promises made to them. If Satan can annihilate them, then he thinks he's got God on a technicality. What do you mean? If Satan can go to God and say, you didn't keep your promise to Abraham, I was there when I saw, I know what's written, and you didn't keep your promise to Abraham, and then I prevented the second coming, so the promise of Messiah, you're both a liar. How can you judge me if you're a liar too? That would be hypocritical. You cannot judge me by your own law if you're a hypocrite. Do you see the game being played? He's trying to get off on a technicality. So his way of getting off on a technicality is kill the Jews, prevent the promises. Simple as that. Most Bible students don't understand this. They don't understand the role of Israel and how important they are in God fulfilling his promises. That's the Apostle Paul's remark in Romans to you and I. His point to us individually is this. Look, he's a promise-keeping God. He's going to finish your salvation. And the way I'm going to show it is what he's going to do with Israel. If he finishes his promise with Israel, then your promises individually are as good as gold. That's Paul's whole argument. He makes his argument for you and I based on Israel. Amazing. That's the real intent. Now, we get to an application. And I might have to stop after this. I'm running out of time. Jump to verse 15. Behold, I am coming. Now, this is what's called a parenthesis. A parenthesis in, in Scripture means it's been going on, going on, going on. It's telling you chronologically, and then it says, stop. Here's an application for believers. and Because it it's starting to get real intense now. And so Jesus is saying something to you and I and also the tribulation saints it's completely applicable uh, for all of us. Behold, I am coming. Now, Jesus referenced uh, to the Jews, you're going to know the place where I'm coming, where you see the vultures. You jump to that verse, 
Um, wherever the carcass is, Israel is going to be the carcass in the tribulation. There the eagles will be gathered together. I'll talk about that. Israel will be gathered in Jerusalem and in Petra. That's where the carcass will be gathered. And he basically said, behold, I'm coming, but this is the place I'm coming. I'm coming to Petra, Jordan first, and then I'm coming to Jerusalem to save the two remnant groups of Israel who have accepted me as Lord and Savior. Now, let's go back to the application. We'll flush that out the second coming later on. I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches, keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. This is not a passage, this parenthesis is not a passage for unbelievers, but is a application, a commandment from Messiah to us right now and even the tribulation saints. This term, I come as a thief, is not a reference to the rapture. I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, as do you. But most people take the thief in the night passage and they apply it to the rapture, and that's wrong. The thief in the night has to do with the cultural setting of the first century and what every Jew knew. And because the church became thoroughly Gentile, they lost the understanding of the term thief in the night. Let me show you a picture. The thief in the night... Obviously, you understand what a thief in the knife metaphor. There was two, it, it was a metaphor that applied to another situation. It's like a, using a double metaphor. It's, it's kind of weird. It doesn't mean someone breaking in your house, yet it does because it refers to the high priest or the captain of the guard in the temple precincts. That's the, the terminology, the, the Israeli language or euphemism or figures of speech that they used. Okay, what do you mean? Well, here's the deal. The brazen altar, the, where they kept the fire going, the fire was originally started by God, if you remember in Moses' tabernacle. And that fire in the altar, where they burnt the offerings in the temple, had to stay lit all the time. It could not go out. So that meant that there was watches through the night from other priests who would watch the fire and make sure it didn't go out. And they kept putting logs on the fire and stoking it and keeping it going. Well, because it happened at night, sometimes the priest fell asleep on his watch. So occasionally, what would happen is either the captain of the guard or actually the high priest himself would actually go in the middle of the night to check on the fire, to check on the priest's if they were awake and keeping the fire going. Now, here's what would happen. If the captain of the guard and the high priest found that the fire was going down, they immediately put firewood back on it to get it back going. And then they found that lazy bum priest, wherever he was at. And to serve, you were wrapped in linen, highly flammable, okay? So what the high priest or the captain of the guard would do, as he was sleeping on the ground, they would take a stick and light it on fire. And then as he slept on the ground, they would light his clothes on fire. He ain't going to forget this one. You don't make this mistake. You don't let the fire go out. That's a command. You can't let the fire go out. So they would light that old boy on fire. It being lit and caught quickly. Well, the fire, obviously, with his clothes on fire, woke him up. Right? The first thing he, he would realize as his clothes were burning 
is to get out of his clothes. So immediately we start running and then strip off all his clothes because they're all on fire and he would be running naked through the temple precincts back home to mama. You see the picture there? It's a picture of someone, a believer, being asleep, Messiah catching him asleep, burning him or judging him, and he's losing his clothes. You following the pattern? Now go back to the text, and I'll explain it. Comes as a thief, or I come as the high priest or captain of the guard. Blessed is he who watches. You don't fall asleep. And keeps his garments. Because how would you lose your garments? When you're asleep, the Messiah is going to burn you. Lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Oh, wait a second. What are you saying? Well, the idea, you'll see this in Revelation 19, I think it's in verse 8, that our righteous works represent our clothing. Or basically, in other words, our, our, our linen that we wear represent our righteous acts. Not for salvation, but what we did as a believer, if that makes sense. Verse 8 of Revelation 19 say, The white robes represent the righteous acts of the saints. Ah. If we go to sleep... And the way you define sleep is a lack of faithfulness to the Messiah. And how does someone become a lack of faithfulness? It's real clear in Scripture. You become worldly. When a believer becomes worldly, they will lack faithfulness to the Messiah. When a believer gets worldly, they go to sleep metaphorically. They just stop functioning because they're caught up in the world. Even the Apostle Paul remarked that one of his companions in ministry had abandoned him. Demas was his name. He named him. And he said this, he has abandoned me because he loves this world. He didn't say he wasn't a believer. He just says he's worldly. And he abandoned me on the mission field. When a believer becomes worldly, they, they cease to be faithful and they become unfaithful. Is it possible to be saved and unfaithful? Yes. Is it possible that, that when, when you lack faithfulness to the Lord, that you stop working for the Lord? Of course, you get caught up in the world. You're not doing anything. Ah, so then what are the robes symbolized? The righteous acts of the saints? Yes, your reward. Hence, when Christ judges you at the Bema seat, he will have nothing As he burns you or judges you, you will have nothing to show for. You will be in front of him and all the body of Christ spiritually naked, having nothing to be rewarded for. That's what it means to be naked in Scripture, that you have nothing to be rewarded for. You're there, and this goes to 1 Corinthians 3, that some people will get there and and basically... They got there in salvation, but there's nothing to reward them. Every one of their works was burned by the judgment of Messiah. So now you understand 1 John now, chapter 2, 28, which, which tags on to this. And now, little children, abide in him, which is 
Be faithful in obedience. This is not a salvation passage. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. That's a fellowship communion with the Messiah. That when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed or naked before him at his coming. Now, that's interesting. That's extremely interesting. That we could be ashamed when Jesus comes back for us in the rapture, when we're at the judgment. Yes, it's very possible that many believers have lived their life for themselves and not for him. And when they get there, they will be ashamed. And not only in front of him, but in front of the body of Christ that stands in judgment before him. Will other believers see other believers judged? Maybe. Maybe. Why does it say, if you go back to the original text, that others may see his shame? Who are the others? Who's going to see a naked priest running through the precincts? The other priests. Who are the other priests? Us. Wow, that, that's, that's heavy. I, don't, I didn't know that. I thought, hey, if I get my fire insurance, I'm good. No, you're not. Not for salvation. Salvation's done with. You're done with salvation if you accepted Christ. That's a done issue. The issue that we're talking about and what this parenthesis is talking about is faithfulness and obedience as a believer to be rewarded. That's what it's talking about. And that's where I'm going to stop because it gets deeper and deeper after this when we get into the battle of Armageddon. But let me do the application and then we'll tie this up. I'll explore this further next week. Ask yourself... What it is that I'm not letting go of, that I don't want to end? Am I hanging on to something that's too much, that's preventing me from moving forward to the good? You may not think it's good. The abundant life is very good. Once you're there, you, can, you, you experience freedom. You experience being able to see the world in ways you've never seen before. Because before then, you're in darkness. You don't see it, can't see it. Is there something that's holding you back? That whatever that is, is preventing you from, so to speak, getting into the promised land of abundant life. Here's the deal. You don't know what you're missing. I didn't know what I was missing until I got there. I took one more step, one more step of giving something up, giving something up, surrendering something, and eventually you're like, oh, I didn't know that was there. Wow, that's a surprise. Wow, that's amazing. I want other people to know this. I want other people to experience this. Yeah, they got to give it up too. They got to give up something. And I don't know what that is. Let me give you a story about an individual I knew growing up. I don't know if he was a believer or not. But a lot of us have baggage and stuff that we won't let go. We have issues in our life that happen to us. We have hurts. We have pains. And it seems to drag us down. It seems to slow us down. We can't get there because we're dragged by this. I found out this week, and it kind of was shocking to me, that one of my friends that I grew up with was stabbed to death. And, and it was a couple years back because we were, we were talking and, and talking about him. And, hey, whatever happened to so-and-so? And I won't use his name because he's from Delano. Grew up with him. We played Star Wars together we, you know, when we were little kids. And we palled around and rode bikes and did all kinds of stuff, went to the same school. And then I lost track of him when I was in high school. 
Then I found out that just two years ago, he had been stabbed to death in Delano in a very seedy part of town. And if you're from Delano like I am, you know where the seedy parts of town are. Uh, they're, they're, this was not a good area where he was at. And, and, and for him to be there, something was not right. He shouldn't have been there. And everybody in Delano knows it. So I did a little investigation to kind of knew some people that, that knew him. And I talked to some other folks. And uh, I said, yeah, man, he, he had gotten into drugs, Brandon. And he lost the house that his dad left him. And, and uh, he got in really bad crowds. And we don't know the exact reason of why they stabbed him to death. Some believe it's a retaliation from the guys he was buying drugs from. Or that he informed some people about these, these bad guys and they retaliated. We don't really know the real story. But all we know is this. He did get into drugs. He got into messing around with the wrong crowd. And he ended up stabbed to death. He died within 40 minutes after his stabbing at the, at the hospital. And you think, what happened to this guy? Well, let me tell you the backstory, which you don't know, which I know. I remember playing with him as a little child, as a boy... And I remember, you know, he had lost his mom. His mom had died and his dad had remarried and, and brought what you call a wicked stepmom into the picture. You've seen those situations, right? And, and some people have good experiences, but some people have really bad. And she, I just remember as a little boy, I couldn't articulate it, but I said, why is she always mean to him? Why is she always yelling at him? He could never please her. He'd never do anything right. The boy had lost his mom. His, his stepmom was wicked, and his dad was checked out. I don't know. I, I was talking to someone else, and they said, yeah, once, once the, the wife died, Brandon, he, he just started checking out. He went to work and everything, but he just checked out with what was going on with this little boy. And they only had one son. It was him. And he just checked out. And he had a heart attack, and, and then someone told me that the dad got killed in the car wreck, so he had... He had lost his dad in death. The, step, the evil stepmom had divorced the dad, and she took off. And once his dad died, that was it. He didn't have any brothers and sisters. He had no family. He was just by himself existing with pain. And he didn't know what to do with it. So what does he do? What does the average pagan out there do? Turn to drugs and alcohol, right? They turn to alcohol, or he turned to drugs, from what I understand. Lost the house that his dad gave him, because obviously drugs will do that. And he ends up at 42, stabbed to death, some type of gang-related thing, drugs involved, whatever, on a bad part of town in Delano. And I thought, oh my gosh, he never had a chance to end the bad so that the good could happen from him. I don't know if he got saved. I don't know. He never had a chance of dealing with all that loss, dealing with the loss of his mom, dealing with a wicked stepmom, dealing with a dad that got checked out and just didn't care about him, to, to his dad dying, the stepmom leaving, having no brothers and sisters, no friends or whatever. He never dealt with that. And he died tragically. See, I, I see his life and, and, and I look here and God's saying, that's the tragic end of people who don't come to me to get life, to have a new start, to get on the right page, and to get this stuff that they have from the past dealt with so they can experience the good. I mean, that's, a, that's an extreme example, guys. 
But at the end of the day, each and us, uh, of us have our own issues that some reason we're not letting go of. Whatever it is, someone hurt me in the past, someone did this to me, someone did that to me, and we won't forgive. I'm taking that one to the grave, baby. I'm taking it to the grave. Long, okay, if you have that, you're not going anywhere. You're stuck, and you have to admit you're stuck. I don't care how much you memorize the Bible. I don't care how much you know in knowledge of the Bible, and you know more about Jesus, and you know about our God. It doesn't matter if you're stuck. You're not growing. Accumulating knowledge is not growing. And I put that out there because I'm just as guilty. I'm just as guilty of not dealing with things that I need to deal with. And God's saying, Brandon, you're going to move forward or are you going to stay stuck? And man, it's hard. It is hard. But I thought about my friend and I, I just felt, I wish I could go back in time and say, hey, dude, you got to take a different path. I know you're hurting from all these losses, but you've got to take a different path. Don't take the drug path. You're going to end dead. You're going to end up dead. You're 42 and he's stabbed to death. I wish I could go back and tell that guy, but it's too late. It's over. I just pray it's not too late for us. I pray it's not we haven't become cemented in the person we're going to go into eternity with. I hope I'm not that guy. I hope I'm changing. I hope in five years I'm different than I am today. That's the admonition we see in the parentheses. There's more, but we'll pick up on it next week. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.